There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Let us pray. Our Lord and our God, we rejoice that thou hast given unto us the spirit of adoption, whereby we can come to thee, crying out from our hearts, committing unto thee all our hopes, our fears, our joys, and our doubts, and the certainty that thou art able, that with thee nothing is impossible, and all things are possible, that thou hast called us, and the good work thou hast begun in us, thou wilt complete unto thy glory and our joy and fulfillment in thee. Bless us in thy service. Use us mightily to thy praise and glory. Establish us ever more firmly in thy work. Make us effectual in terms of thy calling. Grant us this, we beseech thee in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us... Our scripture lesson is again Genesis 1, 26 through 28. The implications of which we have seen so tellingly set forth the last two weeks. We will now analyze with respect to marriage and the family. Genesis 1, 26 through 28. And God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. Technically considered, the doctrine of salvation is limited to God's sovereign act of redeeming grace. But salvation does not take place in a vacuum. It is in the context of life. One of the problems in the last two centuries, and especially in the last 50 years in this country, is that the orientation of things to life has been lost. Things are now discussed in relationship to academic matters or in relationship to an institution. Thus, things are discussed in relationship to the state or to the church, and thereby the vitality and the vital nerve is often cut. Salvation does not take place in a vacuum but in the context of life. Man was created to exercise dominion under God. As Gary Norris explained the last two weeks, he had a calling 
the central and important calling to set forth, to develop the implications of God's word in terms of creation. So that, in a sense, Adam was created by God, a poor man, but with a potentiality of great wealth, created in a world that was very good and without sin, but which required tremendous development. In man's salvation, he was restored or awakened to, to that calling which he had forsaken in his sin, or in his sin had attempted to realize apart from God on humanistic terms to establish not the kingdom of God but the city of man. Salvation, therefore, reestablishes man in the calling to exercise dominion and to subdue the earth. Now, we cannot speak of impotent Christianity. This is like talking about Christian atheism. The idea of impotent Christianity is a contradiction in terms. Where there is indeed not a formal but an actual salvation, there is also the power of God. Things begin to happen. And this is why we must write off a vast amount of Christianity today. We dealt with this some few months ago. But scripture makes it clear there is no such thing as an impotent faith or a powerless salvation. Where the power of God unto salvation is manifested, things happen. Great things happen. Man, having been established in the power of God unto salvation, manifested in active kingship, in active dominion. And the world begins to change. The family is the first area of that kingdom. It is the basic area. It was as a family that man was first of all called to exercise dominion. And it was in the exercise of that calling that he was to feel his loneliness and therefore the need of a helpmate. The implications of this doctrine of salvation and of dominion and its relationship to marriage and the family have been virtually forgotten in our time. It survives only as a relic in one or two marriage services. I shall describe one such service because I know it best, the Armenian. But let me say before I do that Oaks and Hill and their study of rural costume, which is a study of rural costumes as they survived in Europe and various parts of the world, indicates that at one time coronation was a universal feature of all marriage services. That's very true. Now to describe the traditional 
Armenian wedding service which featured the coronation of the bride and groom. Both wore crowns. On top of the crown was also a cross. The cross and crown indicates that it was the atoning work of Christ which restored man to his kingship. The coronation took place prior to the wedding in the home with the families gathered. And the crown that was made for each placed on their head in a form of service with ritual songs sung. Then on the wedding day, two wedding processions set out, one from the bride's home and one from the groom, each of them wearing their crowns, each of them mantled with royal robes in purple to indicate their kingship and queenship. The groom wore a dagger in his belt to indicate that he was now out to defend his dominion and to extend it, and with a Bible clasped to his breast to indicate that this was the principle of his dominion, the word of God. The hymns that were sung in the wedding service celebrated the coronation of a new salvation era, a new area of salvation and dominion. And the wedding service declared the emphatic relationship of marriage, of redeemed people, and the redemption of the entire world, and of bringing all things into dominion to Christ. The crowns were blessed. There was a prayer for the eternal crowns which do not pass away, and for a conquest in history over the forces of Satan. And then the service went on to say, and I quote, In thy living name, God and Lord, maker of heaven and earth, who madest all things by the word of thy behest, thou fashionest man the first Adam and established from him the marriage of Eve. Thou promised him with thy glory and saidest, Lo, they are very good. Thou blessed the marriage of Seth, and therefrom the earth increased down to Noah. Thou blessest the marriage of Noah, and therefrom the earth drew her heritage down to Abraham. Thou blessest the marriages of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they increased on earth and were crowned in heaven. Out of the stock of Judah thou blessest David, and from the seed of David, Miriam, and from her didst beget the Savior of the world, for thou becamest crowner of all things. Now with blessing let this crown be blessed in the marriage of these persons, that this servant and handmaid of thine may pass their lives in peace in all righteousness, to the end that Satan be driven afar from their midst, that thy mercy may come upon them, and that we may utter to thee praise and glory, together with the Father and the Holy Spirit, now and forever. In other words, marriage was seen as the means whereby God, through his saints, brought forth Christ, and the means whereby man's dominion was to be first of all established, 
and Satan driven afar. Very clearly, therefore, the marriage service once was emphatically a declaration of the meaning of salvation and of a post-millennial faith. And this was universal in marriage services everywhere. Moreover, it is interesting that it still survives in Armenian and was once common in many another country that the wife was referred to as queen, the crowned one. The usage of honey or deer is modern. The ancient usage was in various forms to refer to the wife as the crowned one or queen. Again, setting forth what was once the significance of marriage. The area in which man exercised, first of all, his dominion, and God's chosen original and greatest institution. The primary purpose of marriage was thus not simply procreation, but dominion. And procreation was simply an aspect of this, and toward the end that the saints possessed the earth. The cultural mandate thus began with the family and must still begin with the family. And the family cannot be limited to the modern atomistic family. That is, those who are living under one roof, the husband, wife, and the children. This is the nuclear family, not its sum total. The family is something broader. Now, in the ancient world, the family was often very strong, but on ungodly terms. Very often the tribe and the clan represented to the nth degree the family system. And blood was everything. This was not God. One of the most ungodly forms of the pagan family system was ancestor worship. In such a structure, dominion was indeed in a perverted form associated with a family. but in a totally godless form. In the Bible, the law of the family is not the law of the clan, but God's law. And the family must be aligned with God's law. One of the early names for the church was the Christian race or the family of God. So that the family was seen in terms of a basically religious orientation rather than in terms of a blood orientation. This also was true of the Hebrews. And to this day among Orthodox Jews, if a son transgresses the law or abandons the faith, he is no longer a member of the family. The service of the dead is read over him in the family. 
they no longer have a son or a daughter, as the case may be. The biblical family, thus, is in terms of the faith, and it very often extends beyond blood relationships in terms of a Christian sense of family. To illustrate, two families. One, a family that is nominally Christian, but is not truly so. It is a member of a thoroughly irreligious church. Each member of the family, there are three children, goes its own way. They have no sense of moral responsibility to one another, nor to the grandparents. It is a marriage in a biological and a legal sense, but neither in a Christian nor in any respect a moral sense, because even adultery and fornication are tolerated within limits. Another family, again three children, in this case two sons and a daughter. One son and one daughter have never married. All three children reside some distance from the home. But it is a closer-knit family than most that live under one roof. The two unmarried, one son and one daughter, put the other through the university after they themselves got through, are caring for the parents, and have more or less adopted many of the elderly and childless people in their hometown. They regularly visit their parents and also these elderly Christian friends take care of them, take them to the doctor, bring them gifts, and in one way or another have become children to them because they feel as Christians a responsibility towards them. They have a strong sense of family. And they also have a sense of the necessity for dominion. In this case, the two unmarried children who have some means have encouraged these elderly people to think of giving their funds to things that would further the work of Christ in his dominion the schools and institutions that would extend the dominion of Christ. All three children exercise dominion under God and have a sense of a Christian family. The first family is one only in a legal and a sexual sense. In the second family, it is a form of social organization with theological premises, so that it exists and governs where no sexual relations exist. The family is, first of all, a social organization, and it is the prime area of dominion. It has more than a personal significance. When the family is reduced to the purely personal sense, the theology of the family is gone. The family must be seen as God's primary institution, whereby dominion is to be exercised. 
In the modern world, romanticism and pietism have reduced the family to the personal and emotional level. And even Christians are indifferent to the theological and social significance of the family. When we were studying biblical law, we saw that the family controls the central areas of life, those areas which govern society, children, property, and inheritance. These are the determining agencies in any society. The modern state seeks control over all three areas. It seeks to be the new family of man to be the area of dominion and to be the new God and creator. Because the family is the primary area of dominion and of social organization, it is also the primary area of deformation. And whenever a society decays, the decay first appears in the family. And today, wherever the family is in decay, society is in danger and is doomed, in fact. It is important, therefore, to see the centrality of the family and to stress it. The great enemies of the family have been historically both church and state, and in the modern era, the state school. The church has often been an enemy to the family by trying to become the primary institution, by seeking to take over and monopolize so much of the life and time of people that very little time for family life remains. I have mentioned many times before how many churches boast of having activities for young and old day after day. Monopolizing, in other words, every member of the family to the destruction of the family. The state, by preempting those things which belong to the family, by controlling education, again seeks to destroy the family. But today we have the greatest revival of the family in the past few centuries. This may seem to be surprising. We are seeing, on the one hand, the breakdown of the family outside of the faith. But we are seeing also the return of the family and of a hunger for family life to a startling degree. The Christian school movement is an eloquent evidence of the reviving strength of the family. It is created because parents want more than what the state schools can give, which is the theft of their children. But even more, it appears even in the most perverted in their hunger for family life. One of the tragic and disastrous illustrations of that was the film The Godfather. One of the startling aspects of it was its appeal to people. Why? 
one of the most common remarks heard about that was concerning the mafia or the criminal family loyalties. That's the way it should be. Or I'd like to be in a family where people were ready to kill to defend you and so on. One of the other perverted aspects of it is the incidents very, very high across country of associations like the Manson family. What is the appeal? The sense of family. Of dominion, however perverted. The hunger for it. Today, pimps uh, make no bones about it that they are doing very well. Precisely because with these girls, many of whom are from very wealthy homes, they provide the sense of family and dominion and authority, however perverted, but is not present in their legal families. But to cite another illustration of another sort, very often as I travel back and forth across country, I have discussed the family and its centrality in Christian schools and their importance. And I very often introduce a subject, and Dorothy has heard me do it more than once, to see how people react to it. I throw out the subject of arranged marriages. How they once existed very often in the past, and how in some circles they still exist. And it is interesting how anyone over 25 or 30 bridles and is hostile to the idea. In fact, as in one instance, this week can be very emotional in their hostility to it. But it is very interesting also how many college youth respond favorably to the idea and feel that it would be good if the family would bring forth prospective brides and grooms and arrange things and exercise some authority. Very interesting, the hunger for that type of family life. There is today a potential as never before for the revival of a strong and biblical kind of family life. Without it, there can be no reconstruction, no new society. I was very interested this morning as I was reading about 7 o'clock a new book, a large study of the age of Arthur, the British Isles, in the very early period just when Rome was collapsing and Roman authority was disappearing. How very definitely the area of strength in the Christian movement there was the family life and the extent to which biblical law was adopted wholesale and applied across the board, especially with respect to the family as well as other areas. 
And how this provided for the tremendous strength which gave British Christianity for a while the edge and made it the missionary force in Europe. Today, therefore, one of the most impressive sights we can see is that the family again is returning to its strength, not without struggle, not without real heartbreaks and battles, but with a very real sense of the basic issues. About a decade or so ago, a very brilliant Jesuit scholar, Cervantes, who, together with Zimmerman, a Harvard sociologist, wrote a very important study entitled simply The Family, predicted therein that whereas everyone was foreseeing the death of the family and of marriage, he felt everything pointed to its strongest revival in the days ahead. And that revival, he felt, was already underway. But precisely because so many of our institutions were collapsing, people of any faith were and are being thrown back onto the basic institution, the family, and reviving its strength religiously, governmentally, educationally, and in every way. It is important for us, therefore, to recognize this fact and to recognize what the wedding service once set forth, that man who had been created in God's image to exercise dominion and created as a family to this end, was reestablished therein by our Lord's atoning work, our salvation. And the wedding service once set forth this fact the kingship and queenship of man. But here was the primary area through which the saving power of God was to be manifest. His kingship set forth the institution through which dominion is to be affected in every realm. The family thus in the biblical sense. The family as more than simply blood and property, but as controlling children's property and inheritance, must again have priority in our thinking. It is basic to godly reconstruction. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we give thanks unto thee that thou hast called us and established us in Jesus Christ, in kingship and dominion, and hast given us, in thine appointed way, a blessed and a joyful way. We thank thee, our Father, that in our coronation, 
We are crowned with responsibilities and joys, and are given tasks which we can accomplish, and are given the assurance that our labor is never in vain in thee, but in that which we do, thou art ever at work, and thy glorious purpose shall never fail. O Lord our God, we thank thee that thou art the Alpha and the Omega of all things. We praise thee in Jesus' name. Amen. Are there any questions now, first of all, with respect to our lesson? Yes. No, marriage is not a sacrament. Uh, the sacraments are twofold. They are baptism and communion. This does not mean that marriage is any the less important, you see. It is not a sacrament, but it is God's primary institution and God's basic means of acting in the world, the family, even more than marriage, the family. Now, I mentioned Manson. One of the things about Manson that's interesting, he called it the family. And it is interesting that he recognized certain things because while he was and is incredibly perverted, he was not stupid. He recognized the need for a non-blood family, that the world now required a family that was religious and spiritual, essentially in its relationship. And so he established it on a religious basis. Now, of course, it was a totally anti-Christian basis, and... The girls in the family spoke of him as both Jesus and Satan. He was everything. But the essence of it is that he recognized that the traditional blood legal family had failed and that the family had to be a religious entity and the sense of family associate people even where there were not blood ties, that it had to be the religious aspect more than the blood. So... It was a very significant uh, thing, and the meaning of it was not lost in any of the girls. One or two books have been written on the subject, and it's very clear on them how they recognized that here was something religious, and this was their basic loyalty. Any other questions? to make. First of all, I'd like to remind you of the Chalcedon Seminar, July 23, 24, and 25. Now, Monday through Tuesday at 6 p.m., it is a 
seminar for Christian school teachers. But from Tuesday, 7 p.m. to Wednesday evening at 9, the seminar is designed Tuesday evening and all day Wednesday for all who are interested in Christian reconstruction, who are interested in Christian perspectives in economics and history and philosophy and literature in every area of life. And there are leaflets on the lectern in the back for the seminar. So please take them, and if you are interested, send in your reservation as early as possible. Then this Saturday, July 14, at 1 p.m., there will be a picnic lunch of the Calcedon family and friends at the home of Mr. and Mrs. Robert Argas. And we urge you to come. There are announcements on the back lectern also, and you probably received yours in the mails already. If you have any questions, please ask Mrs. Argas. Would you stand, Mrs. Argas, so if anyone doesn't know who you are, they uh, can speak to you afterwards. And be sure to let her know uh, that you are coming. Either give her a ring, her number is on the announcement, or speak to her this morning. Now, are there any other questions? We have just a minute or two left. If not, let us bow our heads for the benediction. Now go in peace, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. Bless you and keep you, guide and protect you. This day and always. Amen.